From the studios of KPCW in Park City, it's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Nell Larson. Well, we rely on the oceans as sources of food and other forms of commerce. But did you know that we are also mining the seas for drugs and pharmaceuticals? That's right. We'll speak with marine biologist and professor Paul Jensen during the first part of the show to discuss his discoveries around the possibility of tiny seafloor creatures yielding life-saving compounds to fight viruses, cancer, and chronic pain. Then, Stephanie Feldstein, Population and Sustainability Director at the Center for Biological Diversity, joins us to speak about global human population. Today, November 15th, is estimated by the UN to be the day that the world's population reaches 8 billion. The projection is revealed in the UN's World Population Prospects 2022 report, which also shows that India is on course to surpass China as the world's most populous country in 2023. By the way, did you know that India is roughly the size of the Western U.S.? Wow. <laughs> yeah, okay. So That's so, dense. So put, put 1.3 or 1.4 billion people into the West. Okay, we'll talk about Stephanie will talk about that, hopefully, <laughs> and discuss where on the planet actually overpopulation is most prevalent, where it is actually leveled off and in some cases declining, and when we might expect to reach, you guessed it, 9 billion. That's all in the second part of the show. Environmental awareness and education. That's what This Green Earth is all about. Stay with us. Welcome back to This Green Earth. I'm Nell Larson. And I'm Chris Chernia. And uh, joining us now for the first part of the show is marine biologist and Professor Paul Jensen. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Great to be here. Well, we're excited to talk about this world of possibility, or so it seems, um, of, of pulling and discovering life-saving compounds, medicines, from the ocean. Um, tell us a little bit about your work in this area and, and how it's changed over the decades. Yeah, sure. Happy to do that. You know, maybe just for some perspective, um, you know, most of the medicines that we have are in some way inspired by or derived from things that we call natural products. Mm. And these are molecules that are produced in nature by plants and microbes and other living organisms for various ecological functions, like, for example, uh, defense against predation. So plants might make molecules that make them taste bad to insects. And so we've relied on this um, as a source of medicines because many of these molecules are what we call biologically active and not only do they have important functions for the organisms that make them but um, they also turn out to be useful for things like antibiotics because they kill other bacteria and so traditionally the pharmaceutical industry relied on plants and microbes that live in soil um, as a source of antibiotics and other medicines. And, and over the years, um, that resource became less rewarding for them. And that's when we and other groups around the world started realizing that the oceans represent a vast and unexplored resource for this type of discovery because there are plants and animals in the ocean that have never been studied before. But also there are lots and lots of microbes that live in the ocean that are very different from the ones that live on land and 
Um, and so we and other groups began exploring the possibility that these microbes might actually be a source of molecules that could be useful for us for things like uh, medicines to treat cancer. Right, because uh, I guess for decades or even centuries now, we occasionally, uh, one way or another, stumble across uh, some some chemical compounds or so that are harbored within a within a fish or a, or a whale or so, and and you know discover some type of let's like, say supplement or other uh, other chemical compound that could be used, but but that. Now you're saying you know, you're working down into the microbe area from uh, uh, plants and other exotic sea creatures that that have a, a chemistry to them that can benefit us. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so you know, in in the early days of this field, which which we call marine natural products chemistry, mm. people. Um, went around the ocean and collected different types of soft-bodied invertebrates mm. like sponges and sea squirts and and organisms that don't have obvious structural defenses. They don't have spines, they don't have shells, they don't have claws. If you if you go on a coral reef, for example, and you look around, there are there are things that have obvious structural defenses and there are things that are kind of gooey and just sitting out there on the reef <laughs> and the question is well why the heck is nothing eating them well inevitably it's because instead of a structural defense they've elected to produce chemical defenses that make them taste bad and this was a, a gold mine of new chemical compounds for the early organic chemists that went around and collected these types of, of plants and animals from the ocean but as you might imagine, you know, and, 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 and you're very sensitive to environmental issues, mm. there are, you know, there are some challenges with, with drug discovery when you're relying on collecting some small little soft-bodied animal that lives in the ocean. And so this is the beauty of microbes. Um, as we began working on microbes that we could culture in the lab, they essentially provide a renewable resource because we can grow as much of them as we want and produce compounds in the laboratory as opposed to relying on field-collected organisms. I'm curious about the initial phase of that field connection when you and other scientists are heading out into the ocean, into the field. How do you like prioritize which kinds of microbes or organisms to collect? It seems like there's endless opportunity or endless choice. And how do you target like kind of where you start with that? Yeah, such a great question because it's true, you know, in the age of DNA sequencing, we we now can get a much better perspective on what's actually out there mm. without relying on simply what we can culture. And that has really opened our eyes to this extraordinary diversity of microbial life in the ocean. So, so yes, great question. How do you even know where to begin? And so in, in the early days of, of, of our work, we targeted groups of microbes that had a couple of important characteristics. One, they, they tend to grow slowly, have complex life cycles, and have large genomes. And those are the kinds of the bacteria that tend to produce a lot of these, of these molecules. And, and we focused on, on groups with those characteristics that we could readily culture in the lab. But, but now, I mean, it's such an exciting time to be in this field because we can, we can sequence the genomes of organisms now that we've never cultured. And when we scan those genomes, we can see 
genes that look like they're going to make really interesting molecules that no one's ever seen before. And no one's cultured these organisms yet. So now we can say, aha, there's this whole phylum of bacteria that live in the ocean that look like they're a rich source of these molecules. And no one's ever found uh, a, a single one of these compounds yet. And so now we can say, well, well, we can try to culture them based on information in their genomes, or we can use genetic approaches to try to mine out the genes that might make these compounds and put them into a laboratory vehicle like another bacterium or a yeast and then try to produce them that way in the laboratory. So a hugely exciting time for this field to, to try to explore new types of microbes and, and the possible molecules that they make. How long has this field been around? Yeah, so you know, the field of marine natural products chemistry really began in the 70s. That yeah. was sort of the golden age of marine natural products. You know, groups of organic chemists um, who weren't trained as marine scientists started thinking, hey, everyone's working on plants and soil bacteria. You know, I'm a scuba diver. I'm going to go out and I'm going to collect some of these these soft corals or or sea squirts or seaweeds that I see, you know, out on a local reef and start looking at their chemistry. So so it really the heyday of the field was was in the 70s, 80s and even into the 90s, you know, and now, believe it or not, it's actually very difficult to go anywhere in the world and go out and collect a sponge or one of these sea squirts and actually find new molecules because people have done a really good job at scouring the oceans and, and, and looking for chemistry from, from those types of animals. Oh, I was thinking about that, kind of that double-edged sword to this, this field in the sense that, like you say, you have to be mindful that, uh, for example, there's a red algae that produces a certain type of protein um that's synthesized uh into an antiviral uh, thumbnail sketch there but it's it's not like okay now let's go collect all the red algae that's out there uh and and wipe out its populations but at the same time there may be opportunities to create uh protective habitats for these areas too because of their value so there's there's a there's a you know a pro and con to the discovery of some of these things but are you suggesting that that we are, in fact, running out of, of soft corals and, and cone snails and red algae um, due to over-harvesting of these? No, these no, not at all. Okay. The, what I'm suggesting is that we're, we're running out of finding new molecules wow. from them because they've been explored effectively. But, you know, you, you bring up a great point. And this is recognizing the value of genetic resources, right? Yeah. And so if, if we can bring attention to the intrinsic value of these habitats in terms of what they may do for us, in terms of providing new medicines, that gives people a new perspective on why we don't want to disturb them. So, you know, we've been working on an interesting project off the coast of California here where the where NOAA, the National Oceanographic and, and Atmospheric Administration, asked us to explore some deep sea habitats that may get mined one day mm. because they're mineral rich. And they asked us to explore the biodiversity there just to catalog it. But interestingly, they also asked us to assess the biopharmaceutical potential of these habitats. Because that's a very tangible thing for people, right? If we can explain that, hey, 
if we mine these habitats, we may lose organisms, including microbes, that could have the potential to, pure, to cure cancer. We need to factor that into the cost of those mining activities. And so, so yeah, so, so it's really important to bring public attention to the intrinsic value of these genetic resources and how loss of biodiversity can also equate to loss of, 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 of medicines that may be very important for us down the road. Right. Well, that's fascinating. I think we often, um, when we think about impacts of the, these disruptions, that's not usually something that's being discussed. So um, right. a, a fascinating new field. Um, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with marine biologist and professor Paul Jensen about uh, the, the discoveries and the possibilities of finding medicines from the microbes in our oceans. And so, so I want to ask about this process of culturing and discovering these, you know, new or interesting molecules that, that you, you know, nobody's familiar with yet. What is the, that process look like? How do you identify if one of these has, um, you know, life-saving properties, whether that's vir fighting viruses or fighting cancers. Mm -hmm. How do you figure that out? Yeah, well, it, it, it's not easy and it's a lot <laughs> of work. I, 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 I'll tell you, I'll tell you the, the traditional way, and that was you would go out, you would collect a sample, say a seaweed, you would isolate bacteria that live in association with that seaweed, and then you would get them into pure culture in the laboratory. You would grow them, extract those cultures with some sort of organic solvent, and that would generate what we would call an extract. And then you would test that extract in your laboratory, say against a cancer cell line to see if it kills cancer cells. If it does, then you would start to purify the active material in a process that we call bioassay guided isolation. So we would use the, the activity against the cancer cells to guide us towards the active principle. You isolate that molecule and then there's a very arduous process of solving the structure of that molecule using various types of, 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 of equipment. And so that's how we used to do it and, and that's a lot of work. And what <laughs> one of the problems is you might end up with a molecule that isn't very interesting because either it's been discovered before, it's closely related to something that's been discovered before, it has certain properties that aren't gonna make it usable as a drug. So what's again exciting about the field today is what I'll call the, the new approach is something that we call genome mining. And so now we can culture an, an organism, a microbe from the ocean, we can sequence its genome and we can scan its genome for the, for the types of genes that are, make these molecules. And, and so we, we actually know a lot about this now and there are actually tools available online, what we call bioinformatic tools that can, that can do this process for you and basically spit out all the, what we'll call biosynthetic potential in the genome of that organism. And you can assess that in comparison with what's known and make predictions about what's unknown and say, you know, of all these bacteria that we've cultured, I think these five have the greatest potential to make something new and exciting. 
And so that's really changed this field dramatically and, and made it a lot more interesting and, and, and fun to, to work in this area. Give, give us some examples of drugs that have been approved and are uh, in the mix, in play right now. So from the ocean, um, there are over a dozen molecules that have been approved as drugs, um, most of them to treat cancer. Mm. Um, virtually all of them are from, from higher organisms. You know, you mentioned cone snails. There's, there's actually, you know, there's, there's a, cone snails produce something called conotoxins, which they use to hunt fish. So this is a little strange sounding. You don't usually think about snails hunting fish, but mm. there is a group of snails called cone snails and they're predatory <clears throat> and they shoot a poison dart out at a fish and paralyze it and then engulf it. And if you don't believe me, you can look up some great videos on YouTube <laughs> showing I, snails I eating fish. I'm going to pass on that video. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I'm going to get right in there. Uh, well done. No, actually, isn't <laughs> yeah. the cone snail, as an aside, that's like one of the most venomous, produces one of the uh, most dangerous venoms on the planet, Michelle. Exactly. And it turns out that it also, it, it's a calcium channel blocker, and it, it's very effective at, at killing, at a, as a painkiller. Yeah. And it's used when, when other drugs aren't effective. Um, so that's one. There, there are no microbial natural products that have yet been approved. We found a molecule a number of years ago that it's working its way through phase three clinical trials right now as an anti-cancer agent. Um, and so we, we've got our fingers crossed that, that this is going to be approved. That would be very exciting because it would it would really be the first cultured microbial product from a, a microbe derived from the ocean. And so, so we're hoping that that pans out. Where does the, say, uh, artificial intelligence, the, the role of AI might play in the research? And, you know, given the, the labyrinth of work that's required to investigate these these potential chemicals I, I just see ai being an opportunity it, it is an opportunity and it's starting to take hold too and 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 where it could really be valuable are things like predicting the yeah. biological activity of a molecule um you know it's very fortuitous when we discover a drug today because we might find a molecule we have no idea what it might be useful for and you can you can test it in your favorite assays that you run in your lab. Mm. You might knock on the door of a colleague down the hallway who has a different assay. Maybe you know maybe you get lucky and it works, but you know maybe you didn't take it, test it in an antiviral assay that it's really good uh, and it could be a very effective antiviral agent. So this is where things like AI could come in to to help make predictions about what sort of biological molecules your small molecule may interact with and, and what sort of, of, of uses it may have to treat disease. So, so given the growing nature and seems to be rapidly changing nature of this field, is there growing commercial interest in this in developing these types of medicines and getting them on the market? Yeah, you know, that's interesting. You know, the big pharmaceutical companies aren't very interested in in 
in this kind of emerging technology. They're, they're interested if you hand them something that looks really polished. Um, you know, there's some interest, there's, there's been some small biotech startups to try to take advantage of this. There's one company in Spain called Pharmamar that's really devoted to the discovery of drugs from the sea. Um, you know, but by and large, most of this work has been driven by academic labs mm. who are more mm. interested in the basic science and, and, you know, our universities all have technology transfer offices now. And so if we find something, the university patents it and then tries to see if anyone's interested in, in trying to develop it. I also have a colleague at the University of, of Leiden who is pursuing a very interesting idea of trying to get all of us academics who are in this field together to try and start a nonprofit drug discovery consortium where university researchers will all team up their various expertise and try and basically do what the pharmaceutical companies do, but do it not for profit, but do it just to advance the science and, and the drug discovery process. Because we, we have a lot of expertise and we don't use it effectively in a commercialization sort of sense. Mm -hmm. And it would really be pretty awesome in my opinion if we could just <laughs> circumvent the whole pharmaceutical industry and yeah. get a whole consortium of academics to do some really effective drug discovery sounds well, incredibly I, exciting <laughs> I, i'll tell you i'll tell you what paul you find a a some chemical extracted from a, a clam that uh, restores hair growth and <laughs> you'll have the private market banging down your knocking down your door to to, to get access to that <laughs> but it is it is in the last minute or two it really is interesting i didn't think about the the collateral nature of this research uh, like you say that you know researchers could spend well, I don't know, years trying to see if a certain chemical, uh, let's say, prohibits uh, prostate cancer or, or ma manages prostate cancer may not work there, but then they may discover that it has some benefits to, say, Alzheimer's or something. So it all goes into a giant database that, that scientists can reach into and explore, take, you know, certain results from one experiment and and test it out on another area it, that that's the that's the idea behind this consortium yeah. i think we could pool all of our our molecules and all of our bioassays and just do it collectively and it would be much more effective so what's the the sort of timeline for you know when you you know discover a, a new molecule and you mentioned that actually you have one right now that's like going through the approval process like how long does something like that take oh it's so painfully long <laughs> um you know the samples that were collected from which the microbe was isolated were collected i hate to say this but in 1989. oh wow so, and then the microbes were cultured. It took a long time to find the molecules. And then just the development aspects, it, it's gone through multiple companies, each taking it a little bit further, and then it stalls, and then it moves a little further. So yeah, so the university's patent on this molecule is about to expire exactly at the time that 
if it is approved, it would go on the market. So, so ironically, the the university, the tech transfer office, would never um, receive any benefit uh. from from that initial patent discovery. And is it still a decades long process now? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It, it is wow. unfortunately. Yeah. Well, it's it's really it's really fascinating work you're doing. Uh, where can people go? website or so to learn more about your work and and this work in general yeah we you know i'm part of a center for marine biotechnology and biomedicine at the scripps institution of oceanography oh. and we've got a, a website there um where you can learn more about uh, my work and the work of my colleagues who are also working in the same area at scripps all right paul jensen Marine biologist, thank you so much for joining us this morning on this Green Earth, and I think we'll be looping back with you in the future to get some updates. Sounds great. Really enjoyed it. Thank All you. All right. Thank you. Let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll turn our attention to population and why today marks a milestone in human population growth. It's this Green Earth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak. I'm Nell Larson. And joining us for the second part of this show is Stephanie Feldstein, Population and Sustainability Director at the Center for Biological Diversity. She's here to talk about global human population and why today is a quote-unquote big day. Big day. <laughs> with respect to population growth. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining uh, me and Nell on This Green Earth. Thanks for having me on the show. And I, I, let's be clear, I wanna make sure we pronounce your last name right. Is it Feldstein or Feldstein? It's Feldstein, you got it right. Ah, okay. <laughs> thank you. Um, let's start here. Why is today, November 15th, a big day with respect to population? Well, as of today, we have reached and surpassed 8 billion people on the planet, which is a huge milestone of sorts. And it's only been 11 years since we reached 7 billion people. Wow. Yeah, now and I remember that. We were on the, we were doing <laughs> we our show. We did a show about that at the time. <laughs> 11 years ago. Uh, we'll see if we're going to be around for the, uh, when we get to nine, but we'll save that for a little later in the conversation. Eight billion people is this population uh centered in like two or three or four countries or how does population work its way around the globe well the greatest amount of population just in terms of density we do see more in the global south um in uh, china and india are the two most populous countries in the world um, the united states is third though and the huh. fastest growth that we are seeing is in sub-Saharan Africa. But, you know, it's really distributed around the world. Like I said, the U.S. is number three in terms of most populous countries, but, you know, far outstrips the others in terms of, you know, kind of our impact on the planet per person. That That's interesting. I didn't know we were third because what is there, roughly 380 million of us here in the U.S., plus or minus. Mm -hmm. But when you talk about yeah. it, tell us how many people live in India and China. You know, I should have those numbers All in right. front of me, but their populations, there's a significant jump between yes. the populations of India and China and the United States. Um, I should have that breakdown in front of me of what they are at today. 
but yeah. I'll, I'll admit that I don't. But there is definitely a big gap in in between those, and you know, so the ways that we see population pressure play out are you know, are definitely different in, in countries like China and India, where there are significantly more people and, uh, you know, versus the United States, where, you know, we're still under 400 million people and we do have a lot of land mass here. Yeah. But, you know, again, our, that doesn't mean our impact is less. No, and I think roughly there's somewhere around 1.3 billion or so uh, people in China and the same and soon to be more people in India in a landmass that is less than half the size of the U.S. So it's, in a, it's a stunning density of people who live in India. And is India's population still increasing? Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're definitely continuing to see population growth there. And yeah, that, that density has just an enormous impact on day-to-day -day life. I, I wanted to ask about um, something I read in this article that um, the, the report says that fertility has fallen markedly in recent decades. For many countries today, two thirds of the global population lives in a country or an area where lifetime fertility is below 2.1 births per woman, which is the level required for zero growth. So it seems like some places are losing like population and others are gaining. Can you give us a sense of what's driving this? Sure, fertility rates vary greatly around the world, although you know, compared to 50 years ago, as a whole around the world, we're seeing average fertility rates decline, um, which is a good thing. And what drives declining fertility rates, the, you know, the biggest factors are really the empowerment of women and girls. So making sure that women and girls are able to stay in school, have a good education, have good economic opportunity. Um, that often results in people choosing to have children later in life and have fewer children, which is what adds up to that lower fertility rate. And then also, of course, increasing access to um, birth control and reproductive health care, because if you don't have the tools and resources you need to decide if and when you're going to have children, then, you know, it's impossible to make that choice and, you know, and to have uh, smaller families and, you know, and fewer children, um, you know, but a lot of times the, you know, the interesting thing that, you know, that we see with this dynamic is that even in countries like the United States, where we have a low fertility rate, mm. nearly half of all pregnancies are still unplanned here. So there's still a really big gap with, you know, between wow. true reproductive freedom and, you know, what we're seeing in these infertility rates. Is there, well, let's say when I was born, there was three billion people on this planet around 1960. Oh my, that's it. Even then, back then, it was seen as, wow, we're reaching our uh, sustainability limit. Three, four, four billion, maybe five billion. We couldn't, you know, a lot of research suggests we couldn't go much beyond, say, five billion people. Here we are at eight billion. Um, is that enough? Stephanie, is eight billion enough? Or I, I'm thinking of that show back in the '80s. Eight is enough, but we should we <laughs> right. should we should change the name of our uh, show to eight, eight, eight billion is enough. Um. But you know, we just keep growing. Is eight billion enough, or are we? Well, we're headed to nine billion, aren't we? We're headed to nine billion and beyond. I mean, it's it's expected that population growth won't really taper off until we get closer to you know like. 
10.511 billion or so. Mm, wow. So it's expected to see population continuing to grow. And I mean, it's more than enough. <laughs> Right. Um, you know, if if you ask the planet, it's definitely more than enough. I mean, we're already seeing that, you know, we're in debt to the planet. There is a, um, the Global Footprint Network calculates every year when we go into overshoot. So when we've used up the amount of resources that the earth can replenish in a year. And every year, that number keeps getting earlier and earlier in the calendar. And we're already using twice as many resources every year as the earth can replenish. So we're already in debt to the planet. So, um, yeah, I think 8 billion puts an enormous amount of stress on the environment. I, I was actually just kind of about to ask about that impact of the number of people. And, you know, the Center for Biological Diversity isn't necessarily a, you know, like population um, focused organization. You do so much work. And can you talk to us a little bit more about how population interacts with biological diversity and, and those other environmental impacts? Absolutely. The Center for Biological Diversity is it's actually a wildlife conservation organization. Our, our mission is, in short, to save life on Earth. Um, and we're really working to fight the extinction crisis, as well as all of the underlying causes of that, you know, like the extinction crisis, habitat loss, everything that goes along with that. And in about 2009, you know, we've been doing this work for quite a while. And then we realized that nobody was really talking about population anymore. Mm. And unless we addressed population growth, mm. all of these other efforts that we were doing, everything else we were trying to do to save wildlife and the wild places they need to survive was ultimately gonna be undermined if our numbers just kept growing and growing. And of course, you know there are a lot of factors that go into our impact on the environment and population alone isn't responsible for say like the destruction of the fossil fuel industry or the enormous amount of land that animal agriculture takes up on this planet. But it is a multiplier because every single person on the planet needs fuel, food, water, and a place to call home. So while we're trying to meet those needs and many places of course, like the United States are far exceeding those needs, that population growth just keeps amplifying these, these other problems and makes it harder for us to you know, address these other problems that are threatening life on our planet. It, I mean, it, it makes sense, right? When we think about it objectively, um, is there any, is there any indication that as population increases or technology improves that we could like decrease the impact per person by living in a more sustainable way? Is that a possible uh, solution? Well, we absolutely need to do those things as well. I mean, population and consumption are really two sides of the same coin. Mm. I mean, we need to live more sustainably. We need to, you know, reduce the impact of our, you know, of our industries, of meeting our needs, of all of that. But if population just keeps growing and growing, then the math starts to cancel out. But the opposite is also true that, you know, if we address population growth, but don't address our consumption and you know the impact of our industries on the planet, then that math also doesn't add up. So we really need to address both simultaneously. And where we are right now, currently, even with today's population and level of consumption is, is already, as you said, kind of putting us in debt with the planet. We're beyond that sustainability point, right? Yes, we're, we're way off the charts. Like I said, the average is that we use up about twice as many resources that the earth as the earth can replenish each year. But if everybody lived like 
Americans, then that number would be more like five planets <laughs> that we would need to sustain ourselves. And of course, we just have this one planet. So, so yeah, we really need to address, you know, how we're consuming, especially in, you know, high income, high consuming countries like the United States. Because when you look at a lot of the places where population is growing in places like India and Sub-Saharan Africa, there is a need to increase consumption in those places where populations are growing because there's a need to, not everybody's basic needs are being met. And we need to be able to improve quality of life in, you know, in the global south and in countries that don't have as much wealth as the US. So that's even more of an impetus while, you know, we look at this as a global problem and really have to balance things out. So there's there's a lot of work that we have to do. We're speaking with Stephanie Feldstein. She's Population and Sustainability Director at the Center for Biological Diversity. We're talking about uh, global human population and the fact that today, you know, plus or minus is the day estimated by the UN where the world's population reaches and like you say, Stephanie, surpasses 8 billion. It just doesn't pause. <laughs> it moves right on to 8 billion and one and two. And, and by the end of this show, we'll probably be around 8 billion and a, a couple hundred thousand. So um, I, you do mention, again, the majority of population growth is in the southern hemisphere and I just want to point out exactly what countries are projected to increase global population and by 2050, 2050 there will be uh, eight that they that are mentioned the Democratic Republic of the Congo Egypt interesting Ethiopia India as we mentioned Nigeria Pakistan the Philippines and the United Republic of Tanzania so like you say most of the population growth remains in both countries geographically located in the southern hemisphere or so and you're saying that perhaps countries that um for uh cultural reasons social reasons political reasons um have challenges when it comes to fertility rates let's say yeah when we talk about you know a lot of times the numbers thrown around that you know there are more than 200 million women worldwide who lack access to modern contraception. But that idea of access, like you said, isn't always that they don't have a place to like literally physically get contraception. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times it is wrapped up in, in cultural norms, mm -hmm. um, in gender inequality, and in all of these ways that women aren't empowered to, um, you know, to control their own fertility, to have that bodily autonomy, to decide if and when they want to have children. So they're definitely a complex number of factors that go into fertility rates. But that's why when we talk about addressing it, we talk about, you know, kind of the key parts of reproductive health care, plus education, plus that gender equity and empowerment, because all of those things together are what really um, create that reproductive freedom. What's also interesting is the impacts that the COVID-19 pandemic had uh, on population change. Uh, it says here, global life expectancy at birth fell to 71 years in 2021. And that was down from almost 73 years in just 2019. So interesting how, how these days worldwide pandemics have influences on life expectancy and de facto population. Yeah, and you know, it's really difficult. I mean, those of us who work in population, you didn't really see anybody celebrating the pandemic. I mean, obviously it was a tragic situation, but you know, it really calls to light how important it is that we need to address population 
by design and not by disaster. Mm. You know, we don't need to wait for the next pandemic, which population pressure increases the risks of pandemic because it creates more of those those conflicts between people and wildlife as we infringe on their habitat. Um, you know, as food production grows and particularly things like factory farms are exported around the world. I mean, that's just kind of a hotbed for disease. And we see pandemics and potential pandemics emerging out of there. And, you know, and so we really need to, and then of course there's the climate crisis and looking at the impact that climate disasters will have on, on people's lives and, you know, and life on earth. And that's why it's so important that, you know, we talk about these issues, take them head on so that we can have these rights-based solutions that really improve the world for everybody and that we can, you know, reduce population in a in a sustainable and compassionate and humane way that really increases quality of life for everybody rather than waiting for the next disaster. What is the, the Center for Biological Diversity's work focus on when it comes to population? What What is your work focus on? So a lot of our work on population is, you know, conversations like this. For one, when we're not hitting a billion milestone, there's very little talk about population happening in the media. And even, you know, among people, we often give talks and, you know, people come up to us afterwards and say, how come I never heard about this? How come nobody is talking about yeah. this? And, you know, so part of it is getting people to recognize these connections and recognize that there are solutions that are benefits to everybody. Cause you know, of course you, a lot of people recognize that there's, you know, a lot of population pressure on the planet, but immediately their minds go to the worst case scenario of how it can be dealt with. And that's just not the case. Um, so we wanna make sure that people are aware of the solutions. We also do a lot of work to um, advance reproductive rights to support that fight for things like you know, abortion rights in the United States for affordable and acceptable um, and accessible contraception, um, you know, everywhere, you know, and particularly again, because we're a U.S. focused organization, particularly here in the U.S., as well as, um, you know, U.S. legislation that affects other countries like, you know, we're working to permanently overturn the global gag rule that restricts uh, reproductive health care around the world. So there's a lot of that. And then sort of a combination of those two things is we also um, have an endangered species condoms program. So we have these condoms that come in these colorful packages with species on them. And they say things like, before it gets any hotter, think of the sea otter. And they have these just funny little <laughs> sayings on them. They're very eye-catching. And we've given away more than a million of these over the years. And they're a great way for people to start these conversations. And we have volunteers who take them to their own communities, to everything from you know, Earth Day events to church events and people give them away and they're able to like really start these conversations. And of course, you know, they serve a purpose too, since they are, you know, free condoms. <laughs> now we're at 8 billion. You say we're headed to nine. When, when is the estimate uh, that we reach 9 billion and are we slowing in that growth rate? Yeah, so the latest estimate is that we'll reach 9 billion in about 14 or 15 years from now. Mm. So it's a little bit slower than the rate that we've seen because, you know, like I said, it was only 11 years ago that we hit 7 billion. Right. But the other thing that's important to point out is that these projections of population growth are not a foregone conclusion. They are based on a series of assumptions 
about increasing all of those things that we've been talking about, like reproductive health care, access to contraception and gender equity around the world. So that's why it's so important that we continue to fight for those things, because if those, you know, if those uh, human rights accelerate faster than expected, then we may be able to push back that nine billion point even further. We may be able to stabilize population, you know, even lower than 10 billion. But, you know, if we fail to do so, if the attacks against reproductive rights prevail, then we may see that number of, of nine billion come quite a bit sooner. It is interesting that, again, according to the, uh, this article, that around in 60 countries or so, the population is expected to decrease by at least 1% over the next three decades. So there's actually, there are countries, particularly I'm thinking some in say Eastern Europe, where population is declining and they're actually trying to um, get families to have more children. Yes, that's where our economy comes in. Yeah. We're built on this. We have this economy that's built on the idea of infinite growth, but yeah. we only have a finite planet, so it just doesn't add up. And that's where, you know, at the same time, like we were talking about population and consumption being two sides of the same coin, that we also need to talk about our economic systems and talk about how do we, you know, move beyond this capitalism that's pushing for endless growth as well as endless destruction of the planet in so many other ways. Mm -hmm. um, and how do we push toward an, an economy that, you know, that can support a stabilized population that isn't just counting on sheer numbers? Because that's always what's driving those, you know, those pushes in countries is they're worried about what's going to happen to their GDP. They're worried about what's going to happen to their economy when fertility rates fall. I, I'm curious about... Um, how this subject is received when you talk about it in different settings. For whatever reason, I think that there tends to be a lot of controversy around sure. sometimes even just talking about population. And have you seen that change over the time, you know, since 2009 when the Center for Biological Diversity decided to like reintegrate this into your work? H have you seen that change? And if so, how? There has been a bit of a shift. Um, it's definitely a mixed bag when you're when you're talking to people on the one to one level. Like I said, there are a lot of people who are like, "Oh, this makes a lot of sense," or "I've been worried about this, but nobody will talk about it." And you know, there's really relieved to be able to have these conversations and learn more about where we go with it. But then there are definitely a lot of people too who immediately you say the word population and they add the word control to it. And mm -hmm. there's that assumption that we mm -hmm. can only talk about this in the context of things like eugenics, like mm. China's one child policy and like things that are very, very harmful to people and to communities. Mm. And, you know, so there are legitimate concerns there, but, um, you know, so it kind of depends where things fall. And those concerns have always been there, you know, since the start of our program and, and long before then. And there is of course a lot of concern about shifting, you know, how much this shifts blame onto individuals and, and that sort of thing as well. But one thing that I've seen change in recent years, especially among younger people, is that people are very aware of, you know, of the interconnections of things. They're not thinking so much in silos anymore. And you see a lot more people who are starting to take things like the climate crisis and population into consideration with their own family planning. And that's happening both because people are worried about the world that they will be bringing their future children into, but they're also worried about the impact of those future children on the world around them. So that is a shift that we've really been starting to see in recent years. 
Yeah, it, it's interesting. Uh, just in my family, I have five nieces and nephews in their 20s and 30s, and, and not only do none of them have children uh, right now, um, you know, b- their decision, um, the, the only one of them is even married. I mean, it's, it's, it's a completely different mindset that seems to be unfolding with respect to their observations, as you say, Sam, observations on, on what eight, seven, eight billion people are having on our planet as we, well, I'll say, as we continue to raid the pantry of our, of our planet. Um, and and, and you, there is a bit of, I don't know, some people, I call it hopeful in the fact that maybe our populations are finally going to level off population growth. But like you say, there are cultural aspects, there are religious aspects, there are political aspects, and, and no short, shortage of economic reasons why people believe that if we don't continue to grow, we don't survive. That kind of counterintuitive way of looking at things. Yeah, and I think there's also you know, a bit of a cultural shift happening, particularly here in the US, and in, at least in part, thanks to social media, yeah. around acceptance of a child-free lifestyle. You know, I mean, there was always this assumption that, you know, you you grow up, you go to school, you get married, you have kids. And that's what's going to happen whether you want them or not. Right. But, you know, it was very, you know, it was very stigmatizing to choose not to have children. And there's definitely still some of that. But we're seeing more and more acceptance and more community um, happening between people who are choosing to be child free. And also this recognition that you can not have children and still contribute to society and still be, you know, the best aunt and uncle in the world and still, you know, serve your community. So I think that that's a really, you know, promising cultural shift that we're seeing in countries like the U.S. We got to wrap up. That's right. Another segment has has flown by. Stephanie Feldstein, Population and Sustainability Director at the Center for Biological Diversity. Thank you so much for joining us. Real quick, website. Uh, biologicaldiversity.org. Perfect. Thanks, Stephanie, for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. Thanks a lot. All right. Uh, one last break, and when we come back, we got to wrap up. It's This Green Earth. Welcome back to This Green Earth. I'm Nell Larson. I'm Chris Cherniak. And it's time to wrap That's up. Right. We always want to cover the things that you want to that you want to hear that you want to learn about. Mm. So you can always email us your thoughts, comments, and ideas for future shows um, to thisgreenearth at kpcw.org. And the interviews for this show will be posted on the KPCW website later today. And uh, oh, real quick, we got ten seconds. Let's thank our guest again. Uh, that was Stephanie Feldstein. She was Population and Sustainability Director at the Center for Biological Diversity. And Paul Jensen, a marine biologist, talking with us about life-saving compounds from the ocean. The interviews for this show will be posted on the KPCW website later today. Did I just say that? I just said Thank you. Thanks again for joining us. And remember, this is KPCW 91.7 FM Park City. Tune in and listen like a local.